It's watering time, everybody. It is time for Apollo Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. Today is Watering Wednesday, and it's great to be back. For those who don't know, uh, we often do different kinds of episodes here at Apollos Watered. One is a midweek teaching episode that we have affectionately called Watering Wednesdays because we always want to keep the Word of God at the center of what we do. So we want to go back, continuing to explore what the Word of God says and how we might apply that into our lives. And our Friday episodes that you might be familiar with uh, or most familiar with are called our Deep Conversations. And uh, we've had several Deep Conversations as of late, but no Watering Wednesdays. And some have wanted to know what's been going on. Are you not doing those anymore? No, that's not the case whatsoever. Actually, life has been crazy. And I know I say that and people are like, oh, yeah, I know life is always crazy. Well, for us, I think it's a little bit more um, just as of late. And uh, we, you know that many of us or many might know that we moved to Florida and it happened incredibly fast. Uh, our decision to sell our house and it actually selling was a very short period of time. And then we had to ask ourselves, where, where are we going to live? Because uh, we could move anywhere in the United States. And after my mother's passing away, I uh, wanted to be nearer to grandparents because that was the last of the grandparents on my side of the family for our children. So we decided to go to Florida uh, because we had more relatives down there. Uh, the grandparents down there were were closer and we figured we'd pick Florida. So we looked all around Florida and landed on Northeast Florida because it was a growing area and close to my wife's family. So we wanted to be closer to them. How, However, what we didn't realize is how many people were moving to this area. We had heard that there were a thousand people moving to Florida every day. And that itself is kind of a staggering number because I came from Illinois where it seems like there are a thousand people moving out of Illinois every day and out of our community. Um, so we decided to move to Florida just because also it was warmer and you had cheaper taxes and all this stuff. What we didn't realize is that the county we moved into has grown 43% over the last 10 years. So we couldn't find a place to live. It was insane. And it took us about two months exploring the area. And I don't know if I was waiting for some Abraham experience, like go to land that I will show you, but that's not what happened at all. And so we ended up staying in Airbnbs, hotels, and at friends' places. And that, that works for a little bit, but after a while, especially since we have a dog, um, that made it very problematic. <laughs> we couldn't find anything that fit. I mean, we have four kids and a dog. So moving around is finally crazy. Anyway, long story short, we finally, we picked a school, got a place right before or as school started, even though we had to commute a bit from uh, basically an offline Airbnb where we were at. And then we moved into this house and my oldest daughter went off to college. Um, in fact, she hasn't even seen this new place. We signed the lease, but we weren't able to move in yet. And when we move into this house, we've encountered Florida in all of its glory. I mean, we've had to deal with spiders that could kill me. 
um, fire ants, which I, I don't even, I see them and I stay far away. Cause anytime you put the word fire in front of ant, you just want to stay away. Militant frogs. I had no idea there were so many different species of frogs or toad. I don't know if it's a frog or a toad, but it makes a ribbit sound and I hate it. And a stupid snake. I opened up the garage door, closed it. And the garage door closed on a snake and killed it. And it looked like a coral snake. Someone said that it didn't have the one indicator on whether or not it was or wasn't. I don't care. The fact that it even looks like a snake like that could kill me. Come on. I mean, moving here has been hard. Even encountering all the different schools, because the schools in Florida are very, very different than those in the state of Illinois. The county that we're in is the number one school district in all of Florida. We didn't realize that when we chose it, surprisingly. But they don't hardly do computers, which in Illinois, everything was on a computer. And here... It's kind of old school American education where it's, I don't want to say survival of the fittest, but it's, there's no participation trophies. This is dog eat dog, highly competitive, very much like the real world. And where we were in Illinois, it was kind of the, you know, it was much more of the participation thing in a lot of places. And we would mock that, but there's a part of me that's like, after seeing the dog eat dog part, I'm like, well, that's not so bad on some ways, on some ways. Okay. Don't write me. Don't, I'm not going after that right now. I'm just saying there's a difference when we get here and my kids are going to be stronger for it, but it's different. I mean, it's a different political climate. I mean, we've had automotive issues since we've been here. We have to drive everywhere. And then moving into a community where you don't know anyone, it gets lonely. It really does. You realize how much your church family, how much you were dependent upon them for community. And I, I don't know how unbelievers do it. I really don't. Because though community can be messy and frustrating, you get close with people. And we miss a lot of our friends in Illinois. And that was my biggest fear. I mean, I don't miss the Illinois weather, although I, I do enjoy October and I do um, enjoy the spring and planting season and harvest and all that fun stuff. But I don't enjoy Illinois between November and end of April. Basically, that period of time, that's not the time that I, I really miss. And after all these other issues that we've encountered, <laughs> we got COVID. Yep, we got COVID. One of my kids brought it home and decided to share it with the family. So, uh, I mean, fortunately, we have not experienced it like so many others have. Um, I was vaccinated prior to getting it, and I got mine a long time ago uh, before the whole political climate went crazy. That was not my thing at all. But my effects have been relatively minor in comparison to what I know some have experienced, and I consider myself blessed for that. And my kids have had it in a relatively minor way. And we're, we've been in quarantine and almost done with that. But all of that has made it difficult to get connected to the one thing that would change so much else, and that's church. I mean, we've attended a few different churches and got to know some wonderful pastors and leaders and believers, a few. Um, but it, it's strange when you transition after you've been a leader in a place for so long to not being a leader in a place. I mean, that's a big shift mentally, emotionally, um, trying to find and select a church to serve and be a part of that's not a part of my employment. It's it's honestly been a real challenge for me. And <laughs> adding to all the stress in our lives, we're raising funds to launch this thing because we know that God has created it, but we do need to raise funds and relationships, partnerships, getting to know people and helping connect them to what God is doing so that they might experience the joy 
of being in uh, creating something that God is is taking around the world. So it's been a crazy time in the Fleming household to be sure. And I have to say that I've I've missed just teaching the word of God to people. And be, I mean, outside of my family, I mean, my family, I think, is done <laughs> listening to me right now. But I, I miss I miss opening the word of God with people, interacting with people, hearing what's going on in their lives, seeing what God is doing. Um, and I, I can't wait to get that at, uh, doing that again and preaching to a group of believers as we're waiting for the Lord to really show us how he wants us to serve a body of believers. Cause preaching definitely is my gift and my passion and my calling. And I want to be part of that, but I do love watering Wednesday where we do get to explore the word of God together. And what I love about the book of acts and what's what we've been going through over the past year is because it's an amazing, I mean, it's an amazing book. On so many levels. Um, I mean, we know that it's about the beginning of the church and the Holy Spirit's indwelling God's people and new communities being formulated called churches. I mean, you see sacrifice and fellowship and prayer, the power of the word. I mean, people crossing cultural barriers and transformation. And and we also see martyrdom. It's, It's such an incredible book to me. And what I really do enjoy about it the most, though, it's a book of hope. And some people may not think of it that way, but it is, um, especially today's passage, because this passage in some way sets up how bad we are. Now, I think many of us do realize how how bad we are. We don't need anyone else to tell us. We'd like some good news, not some bad news. Thank you very much. And the passage that we're looking at today isn't a normal one that you would think gives hope. But in this case, I think that it does. Because when you can see how bad a person can be, then you see how much they're transformed. You find hope in that. I know that I used to make a joke when I was in high school with some of my buddies. And I used to make all the mistakes out of our... There were three of us that were really close. And I'm the one that made the most stupid decisions. And I remember them saying one time, looking at me, and they said, you know, I've learned so much from you about what not to do. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes I'm still doing that. But it's true. We learn about what what not to do from looking at other people. But we also see, when we see how God interacts with somebody, and we see that God can transform them, that gives us hope to go, wow, that means he could do the same for me. And that's what the gospel is about, is hope. Hope that this is not all that there is. Hope that we can be different. Hope that God is engaged in the world and that he does care about us as creation and what's going on in people's lives and in countries and in nations and in tribes, and that he's working something out that is far beyond our ability to fathom. And, and he's intimately involved in the, in the details of our lives. And there are no small people or small places in the sight of God. <laughs> and I love that. And I hope that's an encouragement to you as much as it is to me. Because hope is found at the corner of reality and possibility. It's something we all need. We hope that things will get better and that God is working to reveal his kingdom in the world. And all that he has said will be accomplished in his time. To know that something is true and someone is in charge. You know, the passage that I want us to look at today is incredible because it's the backstory of Paul's life. It's like a flashback in a way. We're, we're, we're allowed to see back in his life 
and into his character and practice before he met Jesus and was transformed into the apostle Paul. And what's so incredible about him is that everything else that he writes about later in his letters about becoming a new creation, the natural man, the carnal man, and the spiritual man can all be seen in a sense in the rearview mirror of Paul's life. And all that he writes in his letters can be seen in, in dramatic form in Luke's biography of Saul's life before Jesus. Okay. So we're introduced to this. First time we're introduced to Saul is actually at the end of Acts chapter seven, verse seven and verse 57, and then to eight, three. And it's, it's, it's kind of a tie in right at the end of Stephen's life. It's Stephen's martyrdom. And let me, let me pick this passage up in verse 57 of Acts seven. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him. This is, they're rushing at Stephen and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. They're throwing stones at him because they believe he's blaspheming. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now it's, it's very important. He's a young man and and his name is Saul. There's laying their coats there. Like he's the guardian of it. He's a participant really. And this basically saying, here, let me, let me take your tunic. Here's a rock here. Here you go here. I'll take your tunic here. Here's a rock. (laughs) I mean, he wanted Stephen taken out because he felt that Stephen was a blasphemer and was polluting the true faith. But we go to verse 59. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He, he fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. So this is where we're introduced to Saul. Now I want to fast forward from the end now, uh, from the beginning of chapter eight to the beginning of chapter nine, where we are reintroduced to, to Saul. And the text is actually transitioning us because in the first part of the book of Acts, Peter is the main character. And now we're transitioning to Saul, who becomes Paul. And the rest of Acts will move from that focus on Peter to a focus on Paul's new ministry. But I want to see this other passage in chapter 9, verse 1 through 2, because it further expands on Paul's or Saul's background. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Okay, so let's let's stop here for a bit. I want to really draw out and examine all that he did And I want us to see that how Paul behaved or Saul behaved. I mean, I'm going to be using those back and forth synonyms because he's Saul, but we all know him as Paul. And we're going to see there's a lot about him that if we were to put him in a contemporary situation, he we would praise him and think he was great. 
in the sight of God. Now, I know some of you would say, really? Come on, the guy murdered people or or he was at least behind imprisoning them and scaring them. Okay, right. But when you see him in his context and how he was understood by his contemporaries, he was praised for that. And we're going to see that. We always have to be careful when we're, we're looking through the lens of our current time. However, if we still take most of the characteristics of his life and his devotion, his connections, his education, um, his position, we would think that he is a great guy. And we're going to see that how he viewed himself after he came to know Jesus was very, very different. And how he viewed himself can be a, a lens through which we see ourselves. I mean, let me get to that in a minute. I want to focus a bit more on Paul's life because we get bits and pieces scattered throughout his various letters, as well as this bio that Luke gives us in Acts. Um, But if we were to go to Philippians chapter one, Paul takes us back to his birth (laughs) and gives us some other fascinating insights into his background, because in order to understand him and how he affects us, we need to really understand more of who he is. I don't like just reading anybody I or, or following anyone. I want to know their story. I want to know who they are. For me, those things are intimately connected together. And when you see where a person's come from, in many ways, you are much more willing to listen because you understand the experiences, the, the pain, the, the hardship, what they've overcome, what God has done in them and through them. And it makes you more willing to listen. And it's, it's certainly true of Paul when you see what he came through, came from. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 5 through 6, he writes, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he is laying out, and especially in that culture, it meant a lot, where you came from, your family background. I mean, there's a reason why Matthew starts off his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. It's very important for them to establish these kind of lines um, because where you come from, your family background tells a lot about you, especially in that culture. And in our modern Western individualistic culture, not so much. We're very mobile. We travel a lot and those things are less uh, important. But a society that didn't move a whole lot, your name, where you came from, your family told them a lot about your character and who you are. So he is a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Okay, he has an incredible background. We are going to come back to that in a minute because it's going to become very, very important. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner with them. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. 
It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. Luke shows us how far he was willing to go in his zeal in Acts 9, 1 through 2. We read just a bit ago that he was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Okay. So we have our passage and some I ask and say, why are we focusing on this passage? After all, this is not going to be a package that shows up on coffee cups and t-shirts. But it's a great question. Here's why I want us to focus on this passage in Acts chapter 9, 1 through 2, going in and building a bit of Paul's biography. Because I want us to see in Paul a spiritual template for people that we are going to see in this world and why this description that Paul gives us matters for how we look at people we encounter every day. Okay, that's kind of the big idea here. Um, Because we're going to see Paul, how he was before he came to know Jesus. And I want to draw some of the characteristics out of Paul's life. And then through the lens of his conversion, as he's looking back on his life, he sees these characteristics, these things that he's done. And he has a certain view on them that I think we need to re-adopt. We need to put on that same lens that Paul had and look at our lives and the lives of those around us in that way. So here's what I mean. The Bible says that we encounter basically three kinds of people and often uses three different terms to describe them. First up is the natural person. This is the person who doesn't have the spirit of God within them, which means that they are not believers in Jesus. And the second person is commonly called the spiritual person. This person is the believer and has the spirit of God within them. Okay. And then third person is what is called the carnal person or the carnal believer. This person is considered a believer, but who has returned to a lifestyle of sin. Okay. So we have the natural person. We have the spiritual person. And we have the carnal person. And these terms had, for for much of history, been used, especially in church history. Um, They have been used of people within the church. In the last 20 years, though, I've seen a shift away from this type of language. And people don't want to call anyone heretic or carnal for a variety of reasons. One, we don't want that type of attention ourselves um, because we know our shortcomings. Number two, we're afraid that if we would say that, we would be canceled immediately. Um, And three, people are really anti-label right now, even though they use, we all use labels every day, but no one wants anyone to label anyone, especially say that they're bad. So because of that, people just shut up and then everything becomes good. 
right? Even that stuff that is really, really bad. Although it is imperative that we really do use these terms, just like we use the term sin. I remember sitting in a seminary class under David Wells, the great theologian and Christian thinker, and he asked our class the question, do we use the word sin when our culture has lost the understanding of what sin is? And I remember a girl raising her hand and saying, no, we don't use that word anymore. And I thought, are you kidding me? Because if you you lose that word and that concept of it, then you have no savior. Jesus came to save us from our sins. He was crucified. Not just so we'd be better people. That's nuts. No, he, he came because of sin. And to, to, because he loved us, that he had to pay the price. He was our propitiation, our expiation, taking our, our sins away, covering over our sins. And without an understanding, a proper understanding of sin, then we have no need of a savior. So let's just get that out of the way really quick. We, we have to rediscover these terms that the scripture does use. And while we have noticed and I know this might be true of you. I mean, we have more biblical resources than we've ever had before. And I have a friend who just joined a ministry and they said, we're all about improving biblical literacy. And that's great. And I hope that they accomplish their goal. But I know that today we have more resources to engage the Bible than we've ever had before. The problem is, is we're just not doing it. And my question is, why? Why? Oh, it's not a priority. Well, it's it's more than that. There's a reason in our minds why it's not become a priority. And I don't think it's just any one factor. I think there are many factors at work there. So all of that is to say we need to make sure that we keep the biblical classification of things in our minds and use those classifications whenever we're talking about a variety of issues. So we need to get back to the word of God, because if we don't, then, you know, we become like Yale and Yale doesn't believe in anything except in cosmic rainbows and in a world of fairies. So biblically speaking, it's not what my opinion is or what your opinion is that matters. The question is, what does the Bible say? And, and what does it say in context? What does it, what does it mean? And, and what is the meaning that the author intended? And that's why we have to understand when we look at Saul through that lens that he's actually a lost man. He's in his natural state. He is an unbeliever who doesn't know God. And some might say, how can you possibly say that? Well, because he says that. That's why. That's the judgment that he places upon himself. And I want us to see in this natural person, because I believe that there are many t today uh, in our world that need to see this truth. But it, re returning to the Bible to see that our identities are not so self-imposed and determined as we think. Instead, they follow uh, under a, they fall under a biblical label that reveals the true nature of our heart, which is why Saul is in focus. He is really the natural person. He is not the spiritual person yet. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the spiritual person or the carnal person. Instead, I want to focus more on this natural person. Um, and, and, and I know that many of us, we, we're still not exactly sure what the spiritual man is. So allow me a moment to read what is perhaps the most focused passage on this subject. And I'm just going to touch on it briefly. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through 17. And I quote it because it was... Paul, who wrote it, okay? 
And I figure if there's anyone who understood the natural man, it's the guy who saw himself as it. After all, you know your own experience and you are the best judge of your past. So this is what he writes in verse six. Yet when I am among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. No, this the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan and was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. This is what the scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit, for his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. For... Who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. Okay, so we have the spiritual man. What do I want us to learn from this? Well, plenty. First up, I want to want us to see that Saul is what I like to call a natural naysayer. He is a natural naysayer, a person without the spirit of God. And again, I know this sounds like foreign language to us today. We don't talk in such stark terms. We want to just get over that. It's theology. No, it's the performance script. The Bible is the performance script that he has given us to show how to live out his gospel before a watching world. How do we perform it? So we need to understand how to perform it. We need to understand what our parts are and what the parts of other people that find themselves on the stage of the world or that we interact with. And we're going to encounter these natural naysayers. And again, it's not the person of recovering this description, nor should it be used as a weapons weapon against other people. So I, I, what I mean by that is I don't want us to, to use this as a means to keep other buddy down or say, oh, you're a natural naysayer. No, 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 that's not the point I'm trying to make. It's just simply a description so that we might be able to discern who is a believer or operating as a believer and who's not. And that helps us to understand how to categorize and how to respond to them. Now, we're always to love, of course, but our interactions with them take on a different response Biblically speaking, depending on upon who they are. And I, I, allow me to explain why this is important. Because if we were to go online and examine people's posts for a 24-hour period of time, let's just take all of our friends and their posts for 24 hours. What could we learn about God from them? Now, I, I think we can learn quite a bit. And, and this is what I've noticed, okay? 
This is my personal observations for many of those that I know that are my Facebook friends. Today, it's not about the content of one's belief for most of them, but rather about the conviction the person has for it. So it's not about the content, what they believe. It's how they believe it. Or it's not about the argument that they're arguing from or the fact of it's true or not. It's about the sincerity of it. And it doesn't matter if it's objectively true, but only if it's true for them. It's their truth. So if they believe it, then it's okay. This is what I've gathered about how we view God. If it's, it's also less about definition and more about devotion. The lines are fuzzy. If you really believe it, great. It makes everybody feel good. I want us to take the idea of that and transpose that onto Paul for a bit. If we were to look at Saul through today's lens, what would we discover? If we saw his Twitter account, Twitter feed, Instagram, TikTok, which I don't think Paul would have TikTok, um, or Facebook feed, what would we discover? Or his LinkedIn profile. Would we say that he's a good guy? Yeah, perhaps. We would say that he was devout, for sure. He was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. And again, I know I said this earlier, but for many of us, we would look at such zeal as misguided and he needs to be in jail. <laughs> but according to the zeal of Saul's time, he was a great guy. Uh, because what he's doing is he's taking his place in a long line of zealous followers of God. You have Moses, who has all the Levites kill all of those who have compromised their faith by worshiping the golden calf and engaging in all kinds of sexual immorality in Exodus 32. Or a guy, not, or a guy like Phineas, who killed a man for, flip, for flippantly and brazenly violating God's law in the sight of all the people near the tabernacle, the, the tent, Okay, in Numbers 25, and he goes in and strikes them dead. And for that, he is honored by God because of that. And that's in Numbers chapter 25, 10 through 13. And there's several different examples of things like that happening. I mean, you, you get a lot of that within Scripture. Or you might even go closer to Paul's time when you look, if you're familiar with the Maccabees, which is uh, takes place in the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament, they gave their lives in order to stop the pollution of their faith. According to our modern definitions, we think that Saul then would be way off. But according to the standards of Paul's time, he would have been a rock star. I mean, he would have had a huge social media following. Millions of Twitter followers, a lot of YouTube videos of him removing people from their homes, the confrontations, just like you see with people online today, whether it's like an a la Jordan Peterson, someone along that line that's confronting people or getting confronted by them and responding. And that would have been very similar, I think, of him. There'd be YouTube videos of him removing people from their homes, and it would have racked up hundreds of millions of hits. And despite his devotion, though, it wasn't enough. Paul actually says of this above himself, that he was a blasphemer operating in ignorance and unbelief, according to 1 Corinthians 1.13. And in Philippians 1.7-8, he considered his entire way of life before Jesus 
worthless. Well, that's not a fun way to think about it. I mean, that kind of pops my self-esteem balloon, right? How, how would you view yourself if you had Saul's credentials? I am... I'm not exactly sure of this, but I think that most of us would think pretty high of ourselves. And it would be quite the difficult thing to come to Jesus. Because it means giving up our identity in order to get another one. And for Saul, it meant giving up the one he had worked long and hard for, and he was honored for. It's hard to give up our identity that way. I mean, think about how everybody would think of him after that. (laughs) All the friends, all the family, all the accolades, all the honors. And he's like, nope, I'm out. I was wrong. <laughs> I, I think you actually see some of this still a lot, still going on in our world today. I mean, in places like India, it's obvious because they have the caste system there. While it's not legally in play, it's still practically observed. And the highest caste is the Brahmin or the priestly caste. And below the lowest caste is actually the Dalits. They're not even considered to be on the scale. They're the untouchables. And you see, though, within the caste system, a group of them, a large group of them coming to Christ. And if you were to guess which one, which one would it be? The Brahmins or the Dalits? I'll tell you right now, it's pretty easy. It's the Dalits because they have nothing. They have no honor. They have, they're, they're shamed. They are shamed. They have no standing, no way to get out of it. I mean, they're born in it. They have to stay in it. it it's, they're responsible for decisions that no one else, I mean, someone else made a long time ago. And when you like a way out, I mean, Christianity offers that way out. Now, for the Brahmins, that's a shake to their system. Because it means they have to rethink their identity. They were born at the top of the food chain. They have the greatest honor. How do you give that up to follow Jesus? Well, you do when you realize the whole thing is a big giant charade and it's fake. It's not real. And you see who God is. I mean, you're willing to abandon everything. And that's really what Paul was because Paul was at the top of the food chain. And, And we have to see our need for faith. It's not about our devotion or about any position that we might hold. Saul was a Pharisee, the top religious group in Judaism. I mean, think Ivy League and the highest fraternity in the Ivy League. And you get the idea. Nor was it about his education. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. <laughs> Again, we're like, well, who's that? But he's the top guy. It's like interning under Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, religiously speaking. That's how connected this guy was. And, and Saul knew people. He was in the right places, and people say it's not about what you know, but it's about who you know, right? And, well, he had both. It was what he knew, who he knew, and how he went about it. He was connected. If you belong to that kind of group, like Paul was, I mean, Saul, again, he's he's connected. And the fact that he could go to the high priest and request a letter, well, that means something. I mean, I, can everybody get access to the high priest? I don't think so. He did. So it wasn't about his devotion. It wasn't about his education. It wasn't about his connections. And it it also is not about his reputation. After Saul encounters Jesus, God speaks to Ananias in a vision, telling him to go to a house on Straight Street where he's going to encounter a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, and he's going to lay his hands on Saul so that he can see. Immediately, though, Ananias' red flags goes up. I mean, they go up in Ananias' mind, and he's like, uh, excuse me, like raises his hand to the Lord. Excuse me, Lord. Um, I don't know if you knew this or not. 
but this guy's not good. He's a bad guy because he's done some terrible things to the believers in Jerusalem. And he actually has full endorsement from the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls on Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing because I think that's what he was doing. I can just picture Ananias in my mind. God speaking to him, Ananias, you know, you need to go do this. And he's like, um, Lord, I don't know if you knew this or not, <laughs> as if God didn't know. And God, of course, tells him that he's going to be his chosen instrument and he needs to go and do it. And he does. And, and of course, we do know the rest of the story. What is my purpose of bringing this to our mind today? Well, it's this. And it's also your water bottle for the week. If you change your perspective, you can see things through the lens of God's word then you find a degree of peace. The more we're confused, the less peace we have. Too often, we fail to examine ourselves and the world around us and how it thinks. That's what I like to do. That's part of what we're trying to do at Apollos Watered. I remember asking uh, a girl, there. They were a Korean group and they were getting ready to meet at our church and use our facility. And we were debating on having them be a campus or just an independent church that was meeting at our building. And I asked her because she was the spokesman for the group. She knew the most English. And I said, well, what do you believe? And she said, we believe the Bible. Well, that's great because every cult I know believes the same thing. My question is, is what do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe the Bible teaches? What, do you, what does the Bible say about? And you can go through X, Y, and Z. What I don't think, though, that people realize oftentimes are the streams of thought that carry them along that actually influences how they see the Bible. It's the context. We're, we're great on content, as Nick Ripkin has said. We're terrible at context and understanding how things were understood in the time. And that's part of what we're trying to do is understand the time we live in and how to apply the God, the word of God to the time we live in in an appropriate way, but also understand the time that they lived in and how they understood it. And we're to cross that bridge to build the bridge between those two, because we do believe the Bible is the word of God and that God has given it to us to, in order to show himself and his plan for the world and his purpose for us and who Jesus is and how we are participants within his kingdom and what's going to happen at the end of time. I mean, the Bible talks about all of these things. That's why what we want to do is help change our perspective by going back to the lens of the word of God and seeing things through that lens. Because we do adopt unbiblical categories. And in doing so, we, we allow thoughts to occur that make hero, heroes out of those who are actually the most far from God. Paul was a hero to the outsider. Actually, Saul, excuse me, was a hero to the outsider. But before Jesus intervened, he was a horror to those who were inside. And then God reversed that. He reversed it after the encounter that he has with Jesus. That's why we are so grateful that God intervenes and takes hopeless hard cases and turns them into humble heroes for the hurting. And if he can do that through him, he can do it to you. I love that about the gospel. 
Through the lens of scripture, we can see God transforming Saul into Paul. He can and will transform all of those who come to him in repentance, faith, and true brokenness. He can and will forgive you. He will remove your shame, your impurity, and your uncleanness, and will remake you into a new creation, morally clean, upright, honored, part of God's tribe, God's family, and righteous. He delights in taking the broken and rebellious and making them whole and clean in his sight. Maybe that is you. You have thought you were all good in the sight of God. You may have been zealous like Saul was, thinking that what you were doing was right. But now you can see that what you were doing was wrong. God can and will forgive you. (laughs) He loves the brokenhearted. His grace and his mercy are greater than we will ever know. Embrace and receive that today. Allow me to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of those within the sound of my voice, whether they're driving right now, whether they're on a run, whether they're at work. Lord, I pray that you touch them. I pray that they might see you in a greater way, that they might experience the forgiveness that comes only through you. And they might also experience the joy of being forgiven, of having their shame and guilt removed. Lord, use them to further your name all over the world for their, for your glory and their joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Next week, I want to focus on the people that Saul was persecuting, who they were and how they lived. It's going to be a really wonderful and eye-opening time that I hope and pray will bless each one of us. And if this episode has helped you so that you can water your world, then hit that subscribe button. Share this episode with other people. That's the greatest honor that you can give us. And if you're able, please consider supporting us in this ministry. We are a brand new ministry and excited to be part of what God has created in such a short time. And we want to invite you to be a part of it. If you want to water the world with us on a monthly basis, please consider being a part of our watering family. Go to apolloswater.org, hit the support us box in the upper right hand corner and pick the best level for you. You'll be glad that you did and thank you in advance. That's it for today. I want to thank our Apollos Water team, Kevin, Rebecca, Eliana, Donovan, and Melissa. Water your faith. Water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. Thank you.